A listener note, this podcast deals with adult topics and is not suitable for young listeners. From 2014 to 2017, there was a 19% increase in murders by intimate partners, with the vast majority of those victims being women. In 2015, 93% of female victims were murdered by an intimate partner. In today's episode, I'm sharing the tragic and mysterious disappearance of a young Bardstown mother named Crystal Rogers. I'm Brooke Wilkerson. This is the Murder Podcast, and this is her story. Crystal Rogers, a mother of five, disappeared from Bartstown, Kentucky on July 3rd, 2015. I picked this case for the first episode because I've been following it since day one. That's because I used to live in the Bartstown area, so I remember the day it was reported that Crystal was missing, and I remember every strange twist and turn after that initial report. If you've ever heard of Bartstown, then you already know that it was voted the most beautiful small town in America. And I find that to be pretty accurate. Bardstown is in Nelson County, which consists of beautiful farmland and the historic downtown area that is both charming and functional. There are tons of little shops there, and the smell of sweet mash is often in the air. That sweet mash is the result of the huge bourbon industry. Bardstown is the bourbon capital of the world, and I actually worked at Jim Beam as a tour guide for a while. It really is just a cool area, and it's surprisingly a huge tourist attraction. There are at least nine distilleries in the area, and it seems like new ones are being built pretty often. One of the best ideas to hit Bartstown was the Bourbon Trail. Tourists come to town, pick up this little booklet at their first distillery stop. They do the tour, try the bourbon, and they get a stamp in their book before moving on to the next distillery. Once they've visited all the distilleries on the Bourbon Trail, they get a free souvenir. They also have the annual Kentucky Bourbon Festival, which in 2018 brought in over 50,000 visitors from 36 different states across the U.S. and people from 10 different countries. So yeah, it's a big deal. Bartstown runs on bourbon. But even though Bartstown has this booming bourbon industry, it has the feel of a typical small town. That's what I loved about living there. You have all the necessities you needed in town, Walmart, Kroger, etc., a pretty decent selection of job opportunities, and you also had the rural farmland and neighborly feel. That's exactly why it's so crazy what has transpired in Bartstown over the last six years or so. It all started in 2013 when Officer Jason Ellis was ambushed and murdered on his way home from work. Then, in 2014, 48-year-old Kathy Netherland and her 16-year-old daughter, Samantha Netherland, were brutally murdered in their home. 
In 2015, Crystal Rogers goes missing. And then in 2016, Crystal's dad is killed in a suspicious hunting accident that many people believe to be a murder. This all in a town of less than 15,000 people, and not a single one of those cases has been solved. As you can imagine, rumors run wild in Bartstown about what has happened. Many people believe that the cases are all connected somehow, but no matter what the rumors are, the fact is that none of the cases have had, at least publicly, much information or evidence. Officer Ellis was a canine officer who was making waves in the drug scene, so there are a number of reasonable explanations as to why someone would want him dead. Being a police officer alone comes with that risk. But what about the Netherlands, a schoolteacher and her daughter? The only publicly shared evidence in their case was a grainy video of a Chevy Impala that may have been involved. No suspects have ever been identified, no other information disclosed. Why would someone want to brutally murder them? But when it comes to Crystal Rogers and her dad, Tommy Ballard, there seems to be a little more hope, since a suspect has been named. But even with that glimmer of hope, Crystal is still missing. Crystal was the firstborn child of her parents, Tommy and Sherry Ballard, who went on to have two more children, giving Crystal a brother and a sister. At the time of her disappearance, Crystal was 35 years old. She had been married once before and had four children before she met her then-boyfriend, Brooks Houck. At first, it seemed like a step in the right direction for Crystal. After all, Brooks was a well-off home builder in Bartstown who was polite and well-mannered. He owned several rental properties in the area that Crystal helped him manage. But in an interview for the Bartstown podcast, Crystal's mother Sherry admits that she almost immediately got a bad vibe from him despite how good he looked on paper. In one of those episodes, she says that she agreed with a family friend that Brooks seemed fake, but they didn't have any big issues with him. The relationship between Brooks and Crystal's parents became a little strained after one day when one of Crystal's kids called Sherry and said that they were home alone. Concerned, Sherry immediately drove to their house, where Brooks had just arrived. Sherry says that she was not happy about the kids being home alone, After all, the youngest was just two years old. Sherry admits that she fussed at him for this and told him that the kids didn't need to be home alone. After that, Sherry said that Brooks didn't speak to her for a few months, telling Crystal that Sherry had disrespected him in his home. Crystal and Brooks were living together and had a son who was two at the time of her disappearance. Brooks claims that he last saw Crystal on the Friday night before the 4th of July. He would later tell detectives that, along with their son, They had visited his family's farm that night to feed the cows, and it was around midnight before he went to sleep. He states that their son, again, who was two at the time, was also up and wide awake during this time and says that that was not unusual. He stated that their son typically stayed up late and slept in late with Crystal. He says that he remembers her playing a game on her phone before he fell asleep. When he woke up around 8 a.m., Crystal wasn't there and their son was still asleep beside him. He got up and got ready for the day, not at all concerned about Crystal's whereabouts. He told detectives that it wasn't unusual for Crystal to leave and to stay at a friend's house, but he admits that typically only happened following an argument, which he didn't mention had happened on this particular night. Tommy and Sherry had only recalled that happening on one other occasion. This case quickly got national attention from the media, and both Brooks and the family were interviewed by Nancy Grace. 
Brooks told Nancy that they did have plans the next day for the 4th of July to go to his family's cookout. But since Crystal was MIA when he woke up, he just went without her. He says that he did call her around lunchtime with no answer, but again, wasn't at all concerned. So if Brooks wasn't concerned and didn't file a missing persons report, then who did? Well, it was Crystal's daughter who first noticed that something was off. She contacted her grandmother, Sherry, on Saturday, saying that she couldn't get a hold of Crystal. At first, Sherry believed that there was a reasonable explanation for this. Maybe her phone went dead or she didn't hear her phone ringing, and she expected to hear back from her soon. Sherry reached out to a few family members to see if they had heard from Crystal and had them try to get a hold of her too. But when Sunday rolled around and none of her family members had heard from her, they started to worry. Crystal's family started searching for her around Bartstown and eventually found her car parked on the side of the Bluegrass Parkway with a flat tire. Her cell phone, keys, and purse were inside, but Crystal was nowhere to be found. Her family was immediately suspicious that this wasn't what it seemed. After all, Crystal had AAA, and they stated that even if she did have a flat tire, she wouldn't have stopped on the side of the parkway. She would have gotten off on one of the exits. That same night, around 80 volunteers gathered to search the area surrounding where her car was found, but their search efforts didn't turn up anything. Almost immediately, the Ballard family was worried about Brooks's lack of concern. He had last seen her late Friday night, but it was her parents who ended up reporting her missing on Sunday after having a brief chat with Brooks. Sherry says that she stopped Brooks on Sunday before she filed the missing persons report and asked if he had seen Crystal. Brooks nonchalantly told her his story, but Sherry says that he also said that he and Crystal had a little bit of an argument that night over how Brooks treated Crystal's other kids. When Sherry saw that Crystal's two-year-old son was in the truck with Brooks, it only made her more concerned. She insists that Crystal wouldn't have gone anywhere without her son, even if she did leave to stay with a friend like Brooks had claimed. When Sherry told Brooks that she was going to file a missing persons report, He allegedly stated, I think that's what you should do, and left. While her family was panicking, they alleged that Brooks didn't appear to seem that worried about her, and he didn't participate in any of the search efforts for Crystal. He would later tell Nancy Grace in an interview that he was, quote, involved behind the scenes with the Nelson County Sheriff's Office. But when Nancy asked him what exactly he has been doing behind the scenes, he responds by telling her who he's been working with giving the lead detective's names and information, but he doesn't actually answer her question of what he has been doing. Nancy asks the question again, but in the same sentence, she also asks him about the results of his polygraph that he was given, and he answers that question instead. To paraphrase, his polygraph was ruled inconclusive, and he states several times during this interview that he is 100% innocent. In that same interview, Nancy asked him what they did for dinner that night. He told her that they stayed at home and ate, and when Nancy asked him if Crystal had cooked, he implies that there's a bad connection with their video chat and says that Nancy is cutting out. So she has to repeat the question. He tells her that Crystal didn't cook, they just ate at the house, nothing special. But again, he never does say what they ate. Another interesting part of this interview are his responses to a couple of questions. He says several times, quote, that's a great question and one that I'm glad you asked, just like a politician would say in an interview. Crystal's last confirmed whereabouts were captured on Walmart surveillance video on Friday night. 
In October of 2015, the Nelson County Sheriff's Office made a statement naming Brooks Houck as the main suspect in her disappearance and told the public that they presumed her to be dead. Crystal's dad, Tommy Ballard, has led many searches for Crystal, and the police department has conducted several searches on the family farm owned by Brooks's grandmother. But even with a $100,000 reward being offered for information about her disappearance, no one has come forward at the date of this podcast, and Crystal is still missing. After his appearance on Nancy Grace shortly after Crystal went missing, Brooks was relatively quiet. In 2018, after three years of silence, he told a WDRB reporter that, quote, I have been advised, you know, to ride the wave and keep on keeping on. And that's what I've done, and it's worked out great this far, end quote. At the time of Crystal's disappearance, Brooks's brother, Nick Houck, was an officer on the Bartstown Police Force. Now, it's important to note that this wasn't the agency investigating Crystal's disappearance. That was the Nelson County Sheriff's Office who was in charge. But Nick Houck ends up being terminated from the Bartstown Police Department because of this case. When Brooks was brought in for questioning, he gets a phone call while in the room with the detective and tells the detective that it's his brother, Nick. Many people believe this phone call was staged. For one, the phone call came in at 7 o'clock on the dot. Then there's his statements while on the phone, right in front of the detective who had been interviewing him. Brooks begins the phone call with, I'm up here. I know you didn't know I'm up here in this interview with the detective. He then goes on to say, Are you telling me that's what I need to do? Look, if you're telling me that I need to leave, then I'll get up and leave. I don't think she's ran off with some other guy. I don't believe it. You can't make me think that. When he gets off the phone with Nick, he tells the detective, he thinks y'all are going to F me, is what he thinks. The whole conversation is super weird, and it's because of this phone call that Nick ends up being terminated from the Bartstown Police Department for interfering with the investigation. The detectives have brought in Nick himself for questioning. His initial interview is pretty useless. He doesn't really offer up any information and doesn't seem all that worried about the mother of his nephew's whereabouts. However, a little over a week later, he's given a polygraph test, and he's brought in to discuss the results of that test with the examiner, and his demeanor here is much different. In this interview, he remains calm at first, just like in the first interview, but he grows very angry. The polygraph examiner is very upfront about the fact that Nick did not pass the polygraph and says, the questions that you seem to struggle with the most are the ones about knowing where Crystal is. He tells Nick that it's no longer a question of whether you know where Crystal is. We're past that. And that the FBI has unlimited resources and we don't go away. The examiner is very forward with Nick cutting him off every time he tries to say that he doesn't know anything about what happened. The examiner tells him over and over that they already know that he knows something, and he is relentless in calling him out on his BS. In this interview, Nick finally gets pissed. He cuts off the polygraph examiner and says, You listen to what I'm saying. I've been 100% truthful. I don't give a GD what your effing computer says, okay? The polygraph examiner says, is this how you act? Insinuating that Nick has a little bit of a temper. Now, this is where Crystal's case gets a little confusing, even for someone like me who has followed the case from the beginning. Brooks Houck has never been charged in Crystal's disappearance. However, one of his friends and also employee has been. 
Danny Singleton was arrested for lying about his whereabouts the night that Crystal disappeared. Danny was charged with 38 counts of perjury in connection to her disappearance, but pled guilty to the lesser charge of 38 counts of false swearing. He was sentenced to 360 days in jail, but after only eight months, Danny was released and finished his sentence out with probation. To this day, little has been released about what exactly Danny lied about and his potential involvement in the case. Now, this family farm that we've heard about is owned by Brooks's grandmother, Anna Whitesides. Early on in the investigation, the Ballard family had shared on social media that they were looking for a white Buick that was parked in a peculiar location the night that Crystal disappeared. A tip came in that Anna Whitesides actually owned a white Buick, and the family reported that information to the police. Coincidentally, Anna had recently sold the car to a dealership. That vehicle was eventually tracked down and searched. An order signed by a Nelson County Circuit Court judge says, It appears the Commonwealth may very well believe all of the following. 1. That Whiteside's motor vehicle was used to dispose of a body. 2. That her motor vehicle was subsequently cleaned. And 3. That her motor vehicle was sold in an attempt to prevent the Commonwealth from obtaining any evidence from it. In addition to searching her vehicle, Anna's home and farm have been searched multiple times with little to no information shared about those results. In June of 2016, Anna pleaded the fifth and refused to testify about the case. So there are a lot of players in this story thus far, but let me introduce you to yet another one. Her name is Crystal. And no, it's not the Crystal Rogers that we've been talking about. It's the new Crystal in Brooks's life. Crystal Maupin. That's right. Brooks has since moved on from Crystal Rogers and is allegedly dating another blonde named Crystal. What's crazier is that in July of 2017, the family of Crystal Rogers had noticed that signs they had placed around the area were starting to go missing. The family had been placing these signs around town ever since Crystal disappeared. And they said things like prayers for Crystal and we stand with the Ballards. After reviewing footage from a local gas station, police arrested Brooks's new girlfriend with theft by unlawful taking after determining that she was the one responsible for the stolen signs. So there's that. On July 13, 2015, a statement analysis of Brooks's interview with Nancy Grace was posted by Peter Hyatt. Per HyattAnalysis.com, Peter Hyatt is a statement analyst and instructor who teaches statement analysis and analytical interviewing to law enforcement and corporate America. He's an author, and he's been interviewed extensively on radio and TV, including 2020, Crime Watch Daily, and Taken Too Soon. Not only that, but Peter Hyatt has written the certification training program for investigators, psychologists, and attorneys in the UK and Canada, And he's authored two training manuals in statement analysis. So Peter Hyatt knows his stuff. Now, the analysis that he posted is really interesting, but it's super long. So I won't cover all of it in this episode, but I will link it in the show notes if you want to check it out. The statement analysis starts out by saying this. Our words reveal us all. Each one of us has a personal, internal, subjective dictionary with pronouns and article notwithstanding. It is extremely rare to lie outright, as it is quite stressful. Therefore, if someone wishes to deceive, 
they are most likely to do so by withholding or even suppressing information. Statement analysis is the scientific process of which truth from deception is discerned and content gleaned. So in this post, Peter Hyatt analyzes the interview of Brooks with Nancy Grace, and he breaks it down sentence by sentence. Now, most of us are familiar with suspects slipping up and referring to a missing person in the past tense, and it's the same concept here, but much deeper. Hyatt dissects every single sentence, and it's really interesting. He also talks about how Nancy should have interviewed Brooks, like which methods work best at getting information, and notes that at one point, Nancy shouldn't have interrupted Brooks because he was giving information. He says that as the interviewer, you should say as little as possible as to not influence the subject's answers. When Nancy asks Brooks what happened after Crystal left Walmart, he responds by saying, When she left Walmart on Friday, late afternoon, early evening, she showed a rental property that we have listed in the Kentucky Standard in a large ad, multiple properties. She then left that and proceeded home. Peter Hyatt makes a note that Brooks is giving out unnecessary information. He writes, Why would we care if she listed it or he listed it or if they listed it together as the word we indicates? Why would the public need to know where the rental property was listed? Why would we need to know that the ad was large? Please note that this is in regard to his missing fiance in the context of what happened that night. He is giving precise details, not about the time, but about rental properties while Crystal is missing. Could the subject be attempting to put the focus of Crystal's activities on the day in question to people she may have connected with through the real estate ads in an attempt to shift the focus from himself. Nancy goes on to ask Brooks what happened after Crystal returned home. Brooks responds by saying that it was a normal, normal evening. At that point, she showed the property and came home. Peter Hyatt writes, When the word normal is used in an open statement, it is an indication of anything but normal to the outside world. And when a word is repeated in an open statement, the repetition shows sensitivity or importance of the subject. Normal not only suggests that something not normal took place, but also that it was quite sensitive as well. He is telling us that what took place between them on the night of her disappearance, something out of the ordinary took place. Another interesting point that Hyatt makes is that oftentimes there is what he calls leakage in an interview. This is where the subject accidentally leaks information. He references the case of Kaylee Anthony. When George and Cindy are being interviewed about missing Kaylee, Cindy says, George and I don't believe Kaylee's in the woods or anything. But in the woods is exactly where Kaylee was found. That was leakage. In this interview with Brooks, when Nancy asks him for the second time if Crystal had cooked that night, he responds with this, She did not. We just ate here at the house. It wasn't anything special or new, anything like that. We knew that we had plans, wasn't going to kill a lot of, kill a lot of time. And then we proceeded, we proceeded out there to the family farm. Like I mentioned before, Brooks didn't answer the question of what they ate for dinner. And Hyatt also picks up on this, stating the subject reports what they didn't have to eat and specifies that it wasn't special or new. Most people, if thinking about the last meal that they had with their missing fiancé, would report what they had, rather than describe what the meal was not. 
Did he avoid saying what they had for dinner that night because something happened to prevent them from having dinner? The subject wants the listener to think that the meal was so ordinary that he did not identify it. The subject has introduced the word kill into the interview about his missing fiance, and he has repeated it, making it very sensitive. That is a most unexpected word and one that should alarm the family searching for Crystal. Hyatt states that it's important to not introduce new words as the interviewer. He says that had Nancy said, what did you do to kill time? Then it wouldn't be considered leakage because Nancy would have been the one that introduced the new word, but it was Brooks who introduced the new word. Proceeded indicates ongoing activities or components broken down to one activity. It may be cop speak if he has a law enforcement background, But since he repeated it here, it is sensitive and it is a signal that more happened than just going to the family farm. He did something else in this period of time that he is thinking about, but not reporting. Nancy goes on to ask Brooks when he realized that Crystal was gone. And Brooks says the very next, the very next morning. Hyatt writes, broken sentences, unless spoken by someone with a stutter, mean an attempt to censor oneself. The very next is repeated, which is an attempt to show how quickly he moved, which shows that he is aware of how bad it looks that he did not notice she was gone the night before. Now to my favorite part of the interview. When Nancy asked Brooks if he reported her missing, Brooks says no, and Nancy asked him why. His response was, that is a great question and one that I definitely want the public and the media. I was not in the least little bit alarmed in any way, shape, or form. We have had a stressed relationship at times, and one of the ways that Crystal has always chose to cope or deal with that is by going to a young woman's named Sabrina, that is her cousin, her dad's brother's daughter, whom she is very close to. She spent the night there on several occasions. Hyatt writes that the phrase, that is a great question, is to A, avoid answering the question, This means that the question as to why not calling the police in a timely manner is a sensitive question to him. B, by using those words is to slow down the pace of the flow of information, indicating that psychologically he does not want to get to something. This is even why the age of the relative is given. The brain wants to avoid the stress and slows down things, adding extra information to aid in the avoidance of the confrontational information. Hyatt writes that Brooks saying that he was not in the least little bit alarmed in any way, shape, or form means that he was likely extremely anxious. A little while later in the interview, Nancy asked Brooks if he went to the family gathering on the 4th of July, and Brooks says that he did. Nancy says, even though you didn't know where she was? And Brooks says, well, I was expecting, I had put in a phone call that morning, and then around lunch... Usually the maximum period of time that she had stayed gone has only been like a day to a day and a half at the most. And as a result of that, I thought that she would, and he's then interrupted by Nancy. Hyatt writes that using the word well is a pause that tells us that the subject needed extra time to consider his answer. He also writes that the language I had to put in a phone call that morning is not to say I called her. This is the language of alibi building. To put in a phone call is an obligation and not a concern. We put in phone calls to customers, supervisors, and other obligations that need fulfillment. We call our loved ones. We may even put in a call to someone we do not like or that we do not know or that we consider obligatory rather than something we want to do. 
This is to show not only reluctance or obligation, but sounds scripted. Then when Nancy confronts him about the fact that some people have accused him of not being involved enough in the search efforts, Brooks responds by telling her that he has been involved, but that it's behind the scenes with law enforcement. When Nancy asks him what exactly he's been doing behind the scenes, he responds by naming the investigators and their location. Hyatt also found this interesting. He says that this is to specifically name detectives as if to show closeness to the investigation. This was something done regularly by Billie Jean Dunn in the murder of her daughter as she attempted to convince the public that she was working with the police, while the truth was that they were actually investigating her and her boyfriend. Brooks goes on to say that he has been 100% completely honest with everyone. Hyatt writes that statistically, those who employ percentages are closer to deception than truth tellers. Hyatt also notes that throughout this interview, Brooks never says point blank that he did not do anything to Crystal. He says that he's 100% innocent and 100% cooperative, but he doesn't actually ever say that he didn't do anything to Crystal or cause her disappearance. Hyatt says we have a rule in statement analysis. If the subject is unwilling or unable to say he did not do it, we are not going to say it for him. As you can guess, Hyatt's conclusion is that Brooks is deceptively withholding information regarding Crystal's disappearance and that clearing his name was more of a priority to Brooks than Crystal's safe return. He writes, His words reveal a very extraordinary night, including stress and tension, of which her phone and the child not being watched were part of the stress. Brooks Hauk is withholding information. There are a lot of victims in this story. You have Crystal, who is still missing to this day. You have Crystal's parents, her sister, her brother, her five kids. But I can't help but worry about her youngest son, who was just two at the time Crystal went missing. Since Crystal disappeared, he has remained in custody of Brooks, and Crystal's parents were fighting for grandparents' rights in order to have visitations with their grandson. Crystal's other four children have been in custody of the Ballards ever since she disappeared. In 2015, the Ballards were granted temporary visitation rights and allowed to visit with him for four hours every other Sunday. But in 2018, an appeals court ruling overturned their visitation due to the extreme hostility between the two families. Testimony at the hearing suggested that the Ballard family's public accusations against Brooks were affecting his relationship with his son. Hauk stated that the child would return from visits with them and ask him questions like, what did you do to my mommy? Everybody wants to know. Hauk's new girlfriend also testified, stating that the child was less loving for several days after the visits. Sherry declined to comment about the appeal, but stated in November of 2019 that there won't ever be a day that I won't say Brooks murdered my daughter. On November 9, 2016, Tragedy struck the Ballard family again when Crystal's dad, Tommy Ballard, was fatally shot while deer hunting with his 11-year-old grandson. While his death was labeled a death investigation, the Ballard family strongly disagrees and believes, as does most of everyone in the community, that he was murdered. His wife, Sherry, stated that Tommy confided in her just a week before he died that he felt like he was being followed. Tommy was persistent about Crystal's case, and he vowed to never stop looking for her. To date, there have not been any arrests in connection with Tommy's death. 
As it turns out, Crystal's disappearance is eerily similar to something that happened in the Ballard family in 1979. On January 19th, Crystal's aunt, Sherry Ballard Barnes, went missing. Sherry was one of six kids, with one of her brothers being Tommy Ballard, Crystal's dad, who was just 20 years old at the time of Sherry's disappearance. Like Crystal, Sherry grew up in Bartstown, and it was there that she met a man named Edsel Barnes Jr., Eddie for short. At just 19 years old, Sherry and Eddie were married. The two had a tumultuous relationship, leading to them being estranged within months of being married. In 1978, Sherry became pregnant, which was not received well by Eddie. Sherry's father, Till Ballard, told reporters that Eddie had wanted a divorce, and Sherry did not. On that day, Sherry left her parents' house to run some errands, but she never returned. Sherry was seven months pregnant at the time, and her family was understandably worried. Searches were organized for Sherry over the following days and weeks, but she was nowhere to be found. Her car was later found submerged in the Ohio River, just across the Kentucky state line in Clarksville, Indiana, about 45 miles from her home. Inside, detectives found that a rock had been tied to the gas pedal, and Sherry's purse was inside. At this point, police knew that foul play was involved, and they immediately suspected her husband, but without her body or any evidence, they didn't have much to go on. On March 22nd, Two months after Sherry's disappearance, and on Sherry's due date, the Kentucky Standard released a front-page article about her disappearance, with the family begging for information. But it would be another three years before Sherry's remains were finally found. It was determined that Sherry had been shot to death and buried on a farm outside of Bartstown, along with her unborn child. Coincidentally, Sherry's remains were found not far from where Crystal's car was left on the side of the Bluegrass Parkway. Shortly after, Eddie Barnes was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder for both Sherry and her unborn child. For more than two years, Eddie's trial was delayed while arguments were made about whether Sherry's unborn child could be considered a murder victim. Finally, in 1984, it was determined that a fetus could not be considered a murder victim, and Eddie was now only facing charges for one count of first-degree murder. Finally, trial began, and the prosecution argued that Eddie murdered Sherry for the sole purpose of avoiding child support and other financial responsibilities, like the hospital bills from giving birth. Eddie's defense argued that he didn't actually carry out the murder himself, Rather, he had recruited a friend to carry out the murder for him, named George Allen Ware. He provided George with a gun and also gave him a ride to and from the murder scene, which resulted in George Weir being charged as well. Till Ballard told reporters what happened on that awful day in 1979. They knocked her in the head and took her down there on Bellwood Road to his trailer and got out a gun and took her someplace and shot her in the back, left her for dead he said. Sherry's mother, Betty Ballard, told them that Weir had admitted to taking her remains to his house, where they set them on fire and scattered them across the farm where he lived. It took just three and a half hours for the jury to find Eddie Barnes, just 24 years old at the time, guilty of first-degree murder, and just one and a half hours for them to recommend a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole which he was given. George Allen Weir pled guilty to murder and kidnapping and was sentenced to two life terms. 
It was because of Sherry Ballard Barnes that Kentucky state legislator decided to add the crime of fetal homicide to the penal code in 2004, making the murder of a pregnant woman a double homicide in the state of Kentucky. If you're enjoying this podcast and want to hear more full-length episodes, mini-episodes, and more, then check out the Murder Podcast Patreon fan club. Not only will you be getting bonus content, but a portion of the proceeds will be donated to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Check it out at patreon.com slash themurderpodcast, and I'll also link it in the show notes. To this day, Crystal Rogers has still not been found. No arrests have been made, aside from Danny Singleton, and few answers have been given. While the investigation continues, rumors run rampant in the community, and signs remain posted around town. Sherry Ballard continues to speak out about her daughter's disappearance and the mysterious circumstances around Tommy's death. For more information about Crystal Rogers' disappearance, check out the Team Crystal page on Facebook, which is ran by close friends and family members. You can also find sources and links in the show notes of this episode, including links to the full interviews of Brooks Houck and Nick Houck, Brooks's interview with Nancy Grace, and the statement analysis. I'd also encourage you to watch the show called The Disappearance of Crystal Rogers on Oxygen, which extensively covers Crystal's case along with other unsolved murders in Bartstown. There's also a great podcast called Bartstown that dives into the details of Crystal's disappearance over the course of several episodes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. You can find all of the show notes and more information about the podcast at themurderpodcast.com. That's the murder, M-H-E-R-D-E-R, podcast.com. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, please contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or online at thehotline.org.